listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Today I'm joined by Unlimited Hangout contributor and investigative journalist Johnny Bedmore to discuss how many of the elite institutions that have spent the last year and a half, and arguably much longer, acting as the architects of COVID-19 policies and quote-unquote solutions around the world have now moved on to begin planning and executing the post-COVID world. While many of these new efforts, two of which we will discuss today, frame their solutions as necessary to prevent future pandemics and promote improved public health globally, what is actually at work is something much more nefarious. This, of course, is made clear by looking into the people who run these new organizations, as well as their motivations and historical track records, both during and well prior to the COVID-19 crisis. After our discussion, it should be quite clear to listeners that architects and planners of the COVID-19 era are now seeking to rapidly advance the same agendas that were introduced around the globe in mass since March of last year. So to start off, hi, Johnny, how are you doing? I'm doing okay, thank you. Nice to be back here. All right, very good. So the first uh, organization uh, we're going to be talking about was the subject of a quite a uh, pretty lengthy um, investigation on, on, on unlimitedhangout.com um, about Welcome Leap. Welcome with two L's, of course, that welcome coming from the uh, deep ties of this new organization to the Welcome Trust. Um, longtime readers of my work, or at least people that have followed my work closely in the last year, uh, will know that the Welcome Trust was also intimately involved with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and more broadly, um, very much involved with the UK medical research establishment uh, in general, uh, specifically with vaccines and have been very influential in a lot of things that have gone on in the past year and a half. Um, so we might as well start there um, with Welcome Leap uh, before getting into something uh, a little different, but uh, equally insane. Um, <laughs> that's called the uh, Trinity Challenge. So um so Johnny and I both worked on this this article on Welcome Leap. Um, it was actually something that I'm surprised I didn't hear about sooner, to be quite honest, um, because it was launched, um, you know, not that long after the COVID crisis it, it itself began last year um, in 2020. And you know, I, I spent a lot, a lot of the past year reporting on on DARPA and then later on on the Welcome Trust as well, and was surprised to not have heard about this insane uh, team up. Uh, between DARPA and, um, well, former DARPA directors and the Welcome Trust. So, um, where would you like to start, Johnny? Well, well, you're, you're quite right. Cause it, I mean, launched last year under the cover of COVID. Um, it makes you ask how many other sinister projects, um, are possibly being launched at the same time, which I mean, me and, me and your, uh, yourself and me, we know fully well is quite a few newcomers popping up onto the uh, scene, mainly on the health tech scene, uh, that haven't been there before or just been able to manufacture enough tech, um, uh, consent for their, their coming technology that they're allowed to get into, into the next stage of what they were doing and what they've already previously been doing. A lot of it revolves around health tech, of course mrna technology things like that but then there's um a, a new leap that they're making the jump towards uh the um future transhumanism really and it's going at hyperspeed now so it's how to slow it down how to stop it but yeah how many how many other projects like this have been launched over the past year and um like 
even though that that uh, it is like a DARP inspired project um, by the Welcome Trust, which is supposedly supposed to be charity organization. Uh, the question is, how long has the Welcome Trust actually been running advanced research projects um, that we don't know about or mm-hmm. um, things that they don't necessarily publish? Because they're obviously deep within the action here. And I mean, you, you can examine uh, Jeremy Farrar for that, who will talk about a little bit later um and it also asks um one question came well as you do more and more research about welcome trust in general the the one question that really came to my mind was uh like who do you think's got more sway over public policy bill gates or the welcome trust yeah that's a really hard question to answer because obviously the gates foundation has been intimately involved with a lot of these uh different initiatives um that have gone on whether it's you know things related directly to the vaccine or or other policies or things not related to healthcare at all just like education tech for example and in a lot of those instances um but mainly in healthcare or quote unquote healthcare you'll see uh, the gates foundation and the welcome trust uh work together or in, invest together in these in these things uh, and there does seem to be a lot of overlap uh, particularly regarding initiatives by the gates foundation and the welcome trust in the developing world but you know it, it's hard to say who has the greater uh pull over global health policy i guess you could say it's quite bizarre, though, isn't it? A charity mm-hmm. trust on the one yes, side. Yes, yes. And Bill Gates is a famous big billionaire on the other side, philanthropist, if mm-hmm. you want. Well, I, w- I would argue they're both, you know, in terms of influence, well, in the UK, they're at least equal, if not the Welcome Trust being more powerful globally. I think they're on similar uh, footing, but it's really it's really hard to know because, you know, while a lot of people in independent media did dig uh, quite deeply into Gates and, and the Gates Foundation, over the course of the last year and a half, um, you know, the, I didn't really see investigations to that extent conducted into the Welcome Trust. Maybe that's because the Welcome Trust is an organization uh, named for an individual that has been dead for a very long time, uh, Henry Welcome, whereas the Gates Foundation, you know, Bill Gates was uh, marched across on on mainstream media on a regular basis to basically tell people uh, what to do um, <clears throat> over the course of, of the crisis. So, you know, there's a lot of focus on him, but the Welcome Trust, you know, for most people is sort of a faceless uh, organization and not very, you know, before this was definitely not familiar, I think, in terms of name to people that, you know, don't work in the fields that they uh, invest in heavily. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, uh, <laughs> I, I, you, when you find when you're investigating, you're looking into the Welcome Trust. What you discover straight away is that nearly every single time you search or you poke around, you come up with the Welcome Trust collection. So they've got a massive, massive collection um, from their original founder Henry Welcome. Uh, started with the collection back in the 1800s, uh, built up over time, and eventually the trust was kind of built for research, but also to hoard this massive collection, which some parts. Of it got sent off to different museums um and etc um it's when you when you actually go and investigate them there's so many you, you, i mean keywords nearly impossible they got such a big collection of stuff that you nearly always come across um a selection of gizmos or gadgets that are in this museum the welcome trust a lot of people went if they were to search for the welcome trust wouldn't see them as research would see them more as a museum at first inspection uh would be more like a a long online document 
documentation of of uh, pieces of medical instruments and other things uh, from the past. Um, Henry Welcome was a spicy fella. I'll just say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's one way to put it. Um, you know, uh, he was definitely an interesting guy, and it's interesting that this particular individual um, has had such an outsized influence on, um, you know, medical research well after his death, considering that he spent thousands of dollars uh, to, you know, fund archaeological expeditions to Africa to prove that evolution uh, never took place and um, that, uh, I mean, just a bunch of crazy, like, race science, basically. <laughs> There's a lot of positive spin on that where they say, you know, he employed 5,000 African people at probably very, very low wages. They don't make. Yeah, and abused a lot of them, apparently. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, there was a lot of abuse. Well, he had a bit of a um, history of uh, rumors of abuse. There was also rumors of how he treated his wife um, with whips. But, I mean, we can get off that until another. Yeah, well, what I think is the most interesting is that all his, all of his biographical information from the period has been heavily censored uh, mm -hmm. by the Welcome Trust, and they've refused to make it available. Um, there is apparently a manuscript of something that was written that some of these quote-unquote rumors um, have been taken from. But we've mentioned, you know, these things about Henry Welcome. It's worth mentioning you know, how he, how he became, uh, wealthy and influential. Um, so of course he and this other fellow, um, Silas, Silas Burroughs. Yes. We're both, uh, born in the United States, as I understand it, but both later became naturalized British citizens and went from the U.S., uh, to, uh, the United Kingdom, uh, to set up their pharmaceutical company based around, uh, the promotion of pills or, or tablet uh, medications, uh, called Burroughs Welcome. Um, and it still exists today, but you won't know it, uh, because it is now part of GlaxoSmithKline, uh, the welcome name being dropped, uh, from the company upon the merging of it with, uh, Glaxo in 1995. So, um, for all intents and purposes, you could essentially describe the Welcome Trust as sort of the quote unquote philanthropic charity arm <laughs> of GlaxoSmithKline, which if you know anything about the history of GlaxoSmithKline, like most uh, multinational, uh, you know, uh, massive, 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 big pharmaceutical companies have a nasty track record of doing uh, very unethical and not nice things, including to people they are ostensibly claiming to help. Um, so uh don't want to go uh, too in-depth into that today um, about Henry Welcome and all of his history, because we still have a lot to put together there for an upcoming report that we teased in this uh, piece on Welcome Leap. But there is um, something I would like to reference, which is from a Sunday Times, the UK newspaper, um, an investigation into the Welcome Trust from 1994. Um, because remember, the Welcome Trust has been around, um, I think, since Henry Welcome died, and that was in the 1930s. So it's definitely an organization that has been around for a long time, but it appears that it, it grew uh, substantially in influence and power at some point in the 1980s, uh, when some changes were made that allowed the, the um, amount of their monetary assets to grow considerably, and thus the more money you have, the more influence um, you can exert over uh, your chosen field, right? So 
Um, to, to quote from this piece in the Sunday Times, um, it talks about how um, basically the framework for the Welcome Trust was set up very, very specifically um, in Henry Welcome's will. And uh, this uh, reporter refers to it as a, it, that uh, says that it's considered now some of medicine's most important documents uh, just because of the Welcome Trust extreme uh, influence. Um, you know, after his death and over time. So to draw a quote from this, uh, this article says, quote, what Henry Welcome set out was a double-edged scheme to run a business and a charity together. The flagship would be a philanthropic body, now the Welcome Trust, enjoying the image and tax benefits of magnanimous public-spirited generosity. But behind this would operate, quote, industrial organizations, end quote, straight up and down for-profit corporations. Today, these trade under the names of the Welcome Foundation Limited, long wrongly assumed to be charitable, and its uh, parent Welcome PLC, end quote. (laughs) So uh, basically, the Welcome Trust was designed to basically be a business operating uh, under the cover of being a charity. Um, it was intended to be that way from the very beginning and set up by Henry Welcome. By the way, Burroughs Welcome was known uh, for the time um, for being involved in unethical marketing practices of pharmaceuticals to doctors and other people. So that's not exactly surprising. But this is interesting because um, as I wrote about in the investigation I did into Jeffrey Epstein and Bill Gates, um, around the time of uh, the the turn of the century, 2000 or so, there was this big shift in quote-unquote philanthropy uh, in the West, specifically in the United States, to essentially merge uh, people's, uh, you know, merge nonprofits, uh, businesses, and philanthropy, obviously with businesses being the driving force there. And that charities would, uh, the, these new, uh, philanthropic organizations, quote unquote, philanthropic organizations would, uh, you know, ma- basically operate through, uh, quote unquote investments. Obviously, it's just basically a business described, uh, uh, disguised as, as charity, um, for all intents and purposes. And one of the main, the two main organizations cited as part of that trend, uh, were the Clinton Foundation and, uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, which both started around the same time uh, the Gates Foundation in 2000 and the Clinton Foundation in 2001. Mm-hmm. So um, interesting to see that it was actually the Welcome Trust that arguably provided the model for that uh, decades and decades before. There, there is a lot to say about um, the origins of the Welcome Trust that we will we will talk about later, but I think that will be very important to all of um, this. They seem very deep within the establishment, but the trust itself is worth uh, around uh, 29 billion, I think they say on their website, uh, 30 billion. That type of money for something which is um, fronted as a, re- a charity organization, but is to really allow research um, that maybe they wouldn't be able to get grants from elsewhere. Um, they wouldn't be able to get funding from officially, uh, maybe research projects that aren't so popular. So it, it's a, a fantastic, the Welcome Trust is a fantastic vehicle for pushing research research that they want to do along uh, without having all of the uh, pesky regulations that probably hang over uh, any other company that deals with medical research. Yeah, good point. And actually, this quote, um, uh, another quote from the Sunday Times article just kind of speaks to the influence of the Welcome Trust in this way. 
back then, decades ago in 1994, um, in talking about the Wellcome Trust, it says, quote, from these companies and charities through grants and sponsorships, government agencies, universities, hospitals, and scientists are influenced all over the world by the Wellcome Trust. The trust distributes more money to institutions than even the British government's medical research council. Mm -hmm. In offices on the building's first floor, decisions are reached that affect lives and health on scales comparable with minor wars in the conference room high above the street and in the meeting hall in the basement rulings in biotechnology and genetics are handed down that will help shape the human race end quote so back then in the early 90s right before they merged with glaxo to become GlaxoSmithKline, the, the company uh, that you know it was henry welcomes uh, was also involved in this to a degree during that time uh, but then you have the welcome trust openly pursuing biotechnology and genetics in a huge way back then and it continues to do so today and of course um both of those fields, uh, as I note at the end of this Welcome Leap article, that makes sense that it would be biotechnology and, and, and genetics there because uh, one of the most uh, uh, influential people you could argue in uh, <laughs> uh, sort of this um, circle of uh, academic elites and scientific elites um uh, Julian Huxley, who was also the director general of the first one uh, of UNESCO, of the UN, when it was founded, um, basically uh, argued for the promotion of these two uh, technologies specifically, and actually in doing so, uh, coined the term transhumanism itself, um, which I think is quite fascinating. So, um, basically, um, it, a, a decade before he did that in 1946, when, you know, UNESCO was being founded, um, in writing about his vision for UNESCO, he said, uh, quote, um, or sorry, that it was essential that, quote, the eugenic problem is examined with the greatest care and that the public mind is informed of the issues at stake so that much that is now unthinkable may at least become thinkable, end quote, uh, which is a really, uh, as I note in the article, an astounding statement to make so soon after the conclusion of World War II. But we, I, I should have pointed out earlier also, in addition to being um, a prominent um, elite and, and thinker in British society during that period and influential in the UN and also on the global scene, Julian Huxley was the president of the British Eugenic Society, which still exists today. It's known as the Galton Institute. Yeah, it's a place where we sit now, though. This is a place where we sit now where they've got to the point where a manufacturing consent for ideas behind eugenics, but not eugenics itself, not saying it out loud, has become uh, normal and mainstream to an extent and is being normalized every day. So we, we I mean, that that is that is one of the most Im important things that we're actually going. We're hitting that major right. uh, turning point now. And if we're going to talk about like uh, uh these guys and and merging man and machine um and you should probably speak about regina dugan yeah well i'll i'll get there i just wanted to add one more thing about julian huxley so after he makes that claim about making the unthinkable become thinkable um he lays out essentially a plan to do that in a book that he in, uh, entitled new bottles for new wine okay and uh yeah well what what he mean the title is very clearly uh you can figure out what it means from this quote where huxley argues that quote 
uh, the eugenic goals of biologically engineering human evolution should be refined through transhumanist technologies, which combine the eugenic methods of genetic engineering with neurotech that merges humans and machines into a new organism. That's what he means by new bottles, new vessels yeah, uh, for, yeah. <laughs> for new wine. Uh, basically, you know, human 2.0 um, dreamt up by eugenicists essentially in the wake of World War II, which if you're familiar uh, with the uh, history of the Nazi eugenics uh, program had a lot of ties to um, the Rockefellers <laughs> and a yeah. lot of people that were not German uh, that were funding that type of research in a big way um, in Germany during that time. And of course, uh, throughout Europe and also in the United States, there were many elites that were um, outspoken supporters of Hitler and uh, specifically that that eugenics uh, policy. Um, and, you know, really, uh, before World War II, the leaders in eugenics were really the United States and the UK. What was quite amazing to me is that they leave um, a lot of these people, uh, the idea of transhumanism leaves no place for human kind at all. They, right. they When you actually hear what they, they, they speak about, they speak about, we're all going to be, you know, we're all going to be these vessels and we're not going to be able to resist and we're not going to be able to give in. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we're not going to be able to resist temptation and we're going to give in straight away. It's this idea that, that there's no place, once this starts, there's no place in the world for man is something that it runs along line, uh, the, the side of all of these themes that they, they push out about eugenics is that this is the end of man. Yeah. And I, I really uh, don't, I, I'm, I'm amazed that people don't find that um, as disturbing when they say, well, it could help though. You know, or it could do this, or it could do that. And yeah, uh, there are people that have essentially been, uh, I would argue, trained really by by mass media to see promise in this types of stuff, not realizing the people um, that are behind this and what their motives really are. And going back to that quote I read from the Sunday Times article in the Welcome Trust, the fact that rulings in biotechnology and genetics are handed down by the Welcome Trust that will quote help shape the human race. Um, you know, that's quite significant. Um, when you consider that now, uh, their latest venture, this welcome leap, mm -hmm. um, is overtly transhumanist in terms of neurotechnology, um, and things like that. And also of genetics and bioengineering. And these have been interests of the welcome trust for a very long time. So that's uh, very important to consider moving on. And of course, the other, uh, uh, you know, organization they're essentially teaming up with, uh, here, uh, the U.S. military's DARPA, um, of course, is also, uh, for several decades been intimately involved, particularly in the neurotech side of that, but also in the bioengineering side of that. Uh, a lot of this is being done currently at DARPA under their BTO office, their, uh, biological technologies office. Um, but um, as you mentioned earlier, Regina Dugan, this is the woman who was chosen uh, yeah. to lead Welcome Leap. Yeah. Well, let mm -hmm. me ask you, let me ask you, who is Regina Dugan and why should parents allow her uh, to experiment on the infant's brain? <laughs> All right. Well, can you, can you yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll get to the infant brain aspect of Welcome Leap in a bit because that really deserves its own um, separate discussion. Okay. Just start um, with, with from, Regina Dugan. Yeah, so uh, apparently her name is with a hard G, so it's Regina, uh, not Regina. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with um, Regina. I'm sorry. All right. Well, I'm sure that'll make her mad. Uh, that's fine. <laughs> um, anyway, so um, yeah, so uh, Regina uh, Dugan uh, began her career at DARPA in 1996 
Um, she was involved initially and won some awards for some program that was involved in identifying uh, landmines. I think it was called a dog's nose was the name of the program she led. Um, and uh, her time at her first stint at DARPA uh, essentially concluded with her leading a counterism task force um, in 1999. Um, but she left DARPA um, somewhere between 2000, 2001. Um, but, you know, uh, after the invasion of Afghanistan, she becomes special advisor to the U.S. Army's vice chief of staff, um, a position she held until 2003, which is, of course, the year that the U.S. illegally invaded Iraq. Um, 2005, she creates a, um, defense focused tech firm called Red X Defense, which contracts with the military and got a lot of DARPA contracts while she was director of DARPA, uh, eventually leading the US government to conclude that she was involved in several severe ethical uh, violations, uh, but she wasn't held accountable for any of that, uh, despite the fact that Red X Defense was given all these contracts for technology that didn't work. So for example, Red X Defense, um, because of what was going on at the time and the military's interests at the time, um, claimed to have technology to be able to detect IEDs, roadside bombs, um, that were obviously are, are mentioned a lot in relation to the occupations of, of Afghanistan and Iraq uh, by the U.S. military. Um, but it, it later came out that this uh, supposed uh, great technology produced by Dugan's firm was actually no more accurate in detecting uh, uh, these uh, IEDs than flipping a coin. So <laughs> um, useless, basically. There were a lot of these type of uh, devices that came up during the Iraq War. It was like anybody could yeah. get a contract from the American government. They were just throwing money away. So, Well, it tells you these these people researching this stuff and doing a lot of this stuff don't actually care about soldiers. They're clearly part of, you know, something more elite uh, that's funding these things for other reasons. One of the bomb checking devices used during Iraq and Afghanistan was just a, a golf ball detecting device that didn't work, and they had redesigned to, and called it a bomb detecting device, but it just did not do anything. I mean, these these type of uh, this this is something where there has to be a question of how many of these people are actually got an agenda, and how many of these people are just trying to profit. Well, off, yeah, true. Off. Well, I would argue that Dugan has an agenda. We'll get to that. <laughs> Well, we, we can say because uh, she's got close links with some of the origin stories around the research and development of um, mRNA vaccines. Yes, right. So um, I'll get into that then, because that all started when she became a director of DARPA. She was appointed to that in 2009. This is, of course, uh, in the early years of the Obama administration, um, and she was chosen for that. And, you know, not unlike the Biden strategy of, ooh, diversity, um, she there was a lot of hoopla over her being the first female director of DARPA. Um, but, you know, uh, she's actually uh, best remembered for uh, developing this so-called uh, special forces approach uh, to innovation that she later takes to Google and Facebook and Silicon Valley in general. How great. Um, anyway, while she's at DARPA, uh, she creates an office that uh, has since been rolled into the Biological Technologies Office that was called the Transformational Convergence technology office. Um, if you've been following people that have been reporting extensively on transhumanism, uh, specifically in the past year or so, uh, James Corbett being one example, uh, convergence is a term frequently used to refer to the merging of man and machine. So unsurprisingly, the transformational convergence technology office uh, focused on synthetic biology, machine intelligence, and uh, how social networks could be used for those ends. Uh, pretty interesting considering that she later 
uh, moves on to basically create a DARPA equivalent at Facebook that was initially called Building 8. So anyway, getting getting ahead of myself. Um, <laughs> but essentially creating this office while she's at DARPA shows an interest from her directly in uh, transhumanist technologies. So... Um, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, Dugan, even though she leaves in 2012, uh, was actually the person who greenlighted DARPA's investment in mRNA vaccine technology because DARPA uh, was the initial and main early investor in the mRNA vaccine technology platforms of both Moderna and Pfizer, which of course are the mRNA vaccines being uh, widely used now um, for COVID-19 ostensibly. I think also BARDA were involved in one of those as well. Yeah, well, BARDA is the US government, um, with yeah, yeah. HHS. and um, I mean, it's basically, yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. Same. Well, BARDA in and of itself essentially has ties to the military as well because it was essentially created and drafted uh, by Robert Cadlick, who I wrote about last year in the Engineering Contagion series, uh, who, of course, is uh, his career started in the military infinitely. Uh, he's intimately connected to the military, was uh, advising Paul Wolfowitz and Donald Rumsfeld um, in late 2001 <laughs> um, about anthrax, among other things, before the anthrax attacks even happened. Um, very fascinating fellow. So anyway, he, he created BARDA and then was in charge of BARDA, essentially. Um, well, there was, Rick Bright was in charge of BARDA most of, for most of that time, but the, but, but the boss of the boss of BARDA was Robert Cadlick, uh, during the COVID-19, uh, crisis under, under Trump anyway. Um, so, you know, I think that's pretty <laughs> significant. They have very, yeah, they have very similar aims as well. Um, how long just, uh, off on a tiny tangent, how long do you think before uh, gene therapy experimentation jumps from mRNA altering tech to DNA stuff? Well, they they, they tried to uh, pull out uh, DNA vaccines uh, for COVID-19 because uh, I wrote about this a lot last year because last January, uh, before they shut down society over COVID-19, um, I wrote a, a report that was actually published by The Last American Vagabond, uh, even though I was still um, officially working at uh, Mint Press. And I was basically like, the vaccines are going to be the DARPA vaccines. Moderna, um, you know, is, is going to be the main one, et cetera. And it definitely uh, turned out to be uh, as such. So it really shouldn't be that surprising. But at, at the same time, in that article, I also wrote about Inovio Pharmaceuticals, which is the DNA vaccine that was trying to make a COVID-19 DNA vaccine. And they are also heavily funded by DARPA. And like Moderna, um, prior to COVID-19, had never taken a product to market despite being around since the 1990s. Um, yeah. So, you know, a lot of uh, commonalities there. And of course, we've had uh, the people that developed the Pfizer vaccine from BioNTech, um, openly saying that after the COVID vaccines, it's going to be mRNA cancer vaccines. Um, and, you know, honestly, uh, Moderna and all these other mRNA um, vaccine companies uh, before COVID-19 were aiming mainly at, at cancer. Um, so, you know, it's, it's pretty clear that that's going to be the next, the next target specifically. And I wrote about recently how the Biden administration is trying to create a health DARPA, uh, separate from DARPA, uh, for the U.S. specifically that they're claiming is going to focus on cancer treatment. Of course, that's going to be, uh, just an endless cash cow for mRNA vaccines. 
in a sense, I think they've learned something from the PR companies there. They're flooding the zone with organizations. You know, they're, they're, they're putting out loads of organizations and making it impossible for anything else to breathe in there unless it's attached to one of these entities. I mean, if you look at Regina uh, Dugan and she's got all of associations and uh, links with people like the Clinton Global Initiative, DARPA, of course, Google, Bilderberg, Council on Foreign Relations, it's going to always lead to the same question being asked is, what are these people working towards? And you think it's just transhumanism? Well, I mean, I think transhumanism, and they're pretty open about this when they discuss transhumanism, that there's going, you know, it's going to create haves and have nots in the transhumanist world, the people who are augmented and the people who are not, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's pretty clear the world they're trying to build is that the people who are not going to get the uh, benefits of augmentation uh, or whatever are basically going to be uh, controlled by technology as well, uh, just to a different extent, obviously, than the elite that plan to emerge in the in the society they're trying to make. So I think people should keep that in mind because they do sort of frame transhumanism as, yay, we'll, we'll all, you know, be great and evolve together with machines and la dee I mean, they try and make it sound very uh, <laughs> utopian, uh, but it's, it, it very much has this elitism uh, built into it. In Britain, we would say it's very Marmite, you know, you either love it or you hate it. Uh, and, and there is a lot of backing, uh, behind, um, uh, the, the, this whole idea of transhumanism. It's not just a, a small amount of people. A lot of people are very naive to what this agenda actually means because, I mean, all agendas end up being about rich, powerful people taking advantage in some way, shape or form. Right. And that's, do well for the 99% of people as they talk about. Well, uh, not to get too off topic now. So I want to go back to uh, Dugan and DARPA in this, this MRNA investment. Um, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, DARPA actually made those investments officially in Pfizer and Moderna in 2013. Uh, Dugan left at the end of 2012, but she greenlighted that because she was the one meeting with the guy at DARPA, the DARPA program manager uh, that led those programs and then later led those investments after Dugan leaves because she was basically headhunted out of DARPA and recruited by Google uh, during that period, right? Um, yeah this uh, program manager at the time that was responsible for these mRNA vaccines uh, currently is director of innovative technology solutions at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> um, so that's interesting again to see um, them pop up um, the classic crossovers. I mean, these are people are all in the same industry now, and the industry has um, uh, just a couple of power players, really. Right. So, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, just a second ago, uh, Dugan gets recruited to go work at Google. Um, of course, if you're familiar with um, critical reporting on Google, uh, intimately connected to the national security state since its founding, uh, the whole uh, don't be evil uh, PR campaign they initially had, but have since discarded, uh, was to make you think that they were just some regular dudes and look at their kooky new product and, oh, they have a rainbow logo. They're so kooky. And look how their search page, uh, has different art every day. Wow. They're so neat. And they have such cool offices and people play on playgrounds at their offices and they're for adults. Wow. You know, like all this PR crap. Mm -hmm. About them uh, obfuscating the fact that, you know, NQTEL, the CIA's venture capital firm, uh, very involved with them and, you know, a lot more CIA involvement uh, is, is there in Google's early history as well for those yeah. that wish to investigate it. Um, but that's, again, a story for another day. Um, but in, in 2012, essentially, 
Google um, had acquired in 2012 uh, Motorola Mobility, part of Motorola, and wanted they essentially wanted to turn that uh, subsidiary of Motorola they acquired and its assets into essentially their DARPA, a DARPA equivalent for the private sector, um, for well their company specifically, right? Um, and that is abbreviated ATAP, um, Advanced Technology and Products Group, and it was actually uh, the person that actually made ATAP was uh, Regina Dugan's deputy director at Darga, her deputy, uh, Ken Gabriel, okay, who, yeah, surprise, yeah. surprise, chief operating officer of Welcome Leap. And okay, let, let me ask you there, um, is he any better than Regina Dugan? Does he bring balance to the force? No. We'll get to that in a second, though, because I do want to talk about some things that, that he and Dugan both were involved with at Google, but some of those, uh, Gabriel, uh, left this ATAP thing at Google before Dugan did, um, and went to run something called Draper Labs that he ran up until he was, uh, recruited into the Welcome Trust in 2020, presumably, uh, or, uh, by Dugan herself, who was like, I want my trusty old deputy by my side yet again. Well, it's uh, do it over time. You see a lot of this within these guys, uh, or is it that they're both working in the same group of people. I mean, all of these guys just mix around in the same pool now. And and it's a real fantastic example of a bubble. Right. So um, to go over some of the things that, that Dugan was in charge of, and, and Gabriel was also involved in this one, uh, one is called Project Tango, uh, which was basically is now the basis of Google's augmented reality um, businesses, um, as well as Project Jack- Jackard, Jacquard, I'm not sure how you say it, uh, which is essentially uh, smart clothing, uh, where basically uh, a bunch of sensors and uh, conductive uh, wiring is woven into textile. So you hardly notice it. Uh, but, you know, it's essentially no different uh, from making uh, your regular clothes or things that look like regular clothes wearables. And I believe they have since partnered um, with Levi's, uh, Le- of Levi Jeans and uh, St. Laurent. Um, <laughs> uh, and so you can have fancy, fancy clothes that surveil you. Hooray. Yeah, there's <laughs> so, a, there's a, there's a, a lot of that involved in the welcome leap. They're trying to put surveillance all over your body. I mean, this is something that they're going to have to enter into now. And, and yeah, uh, well, this is why she was chosen, I think, because she was doing this for Google. And, and just to wrap this up really quickly, the other thing she was involved with there were a, a digital tattoo to unlock smartphones. You may have heard about MIT and Bob Langer, who was actually involved in the founding of Moderna and is a, lar- a largely, uh, a scientist largely funded by uh, Bill Gates creating the quote unquote digital tattoo as a vaccine record. Uh, so now you have digital, uh, you know, Regina Dugan making the digital authentication tattoo, digital identity. And then it's also a vaccine record. Um, of course, if you've, uh, Read uh, not just my reports, but those of other people that cover vaccine passports. The framework being set up there is to merge your financial activity, your vac- vaccination records, and digital biometric identity all into one thing. Uh, so that's pretty interesting, Dugan's involvement in the early stages of that. And another thing she was involved with was the digital authentication pill, which you literally swallow and, according to her, uh, turns your entire body into your authentication token <laughs> uh, and was framed uh, pretty pretty intensely at the time in the, in the media as basically making you a kind of cyborg, like that would be cool <laughs> or yeah. something. And, you know, at the time when Dugan was speaking about this publicly and showing the stuff off, 
um, at some of these conferences. She says her work at Google is basically about uh, fixing what she called the mechanical mismatch between humans and electronics. So that's essentially, um, you know, fusing uh, humans and machines. It's transhumanism. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, while she was at Google, um, you know, she was involved with the Clinton Global Initiative and the Bilderberg meetings, uh, specifically the 2015 Bilderberg meeting where AI was a main topic of discussion and Eric Schmidt, um, head of Google and I guess Dugan's boss at the time, uh, was also uh, an attendee and involved in those discussions. And he since went on to lead the U.S.'s National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, charting out, uh, you know, the U.S. military's AI policy for the foreseeable future. Anyway, um, to wrap up on Dugan, uh, as I, so what she did at Google, she essentially went on to do at Facebook, headhunted, uh, by, <laughs> by Facebook and sort of nabbed from Google to create Building 8, um, which is, has now been folded into other aspects of Facebook, but her research that she started there, specifically their, uh, neural wearables, as they call them, which is basically non-invasive brain machine interface technology you wear on your wrist and it reads your brain from your wrist. Um, that continued well after Dugan left and Facebook actually showcased uh, prototypes of that earlier this year. And I believe March. Um, and they claim that in a couple of years, that'll be widely available. So if you're familiar with um, a video Johnny and I did on you all know a Harari, uh, specifically the bonus episode on Harari uh, that involves the, um, interview between him and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, who was Harari's number one pal. Um, you know, people might uh, find that video of interest uh, because Harari essentially says in, in several speeches, including the speech he gave to the World Economic Forum in January 2020, uh, the second there are uh, wearables made available and, and normalized that can read your brain, such as the one Facebook and, and that is developing thanks to uh, Regina Dugan, that will usher in a irreversible age of digital dictatorships where the government will surveil your thoughts and punish you accordingly for wrong think. So, you know, the fact that they're like, that guy is teamed up with Zuckerberg is totally mental. Yeah. So, um, so I'll just move along then really quickly to Ken Gabriel. Yeah, yeah, let me, let me introduce him. I've been trying to introduce him. So, okay, right. Ken Gabriel is the chief operating officer at Welcome Leap. And I asked you earlier, is he better than Regina Dugan? Of course, your reply was no, because he's basically the same thing, isn't he? Uh, sort of, yeah. Well, actually, so I mentioned earlier that Dugan started her career in the 90s at DARPA, and so did Gabriel, but he was actually uh, much higher up the, the pecking order during that time than Dugan was. Um, and he essentially, during that time, uh, led uh, DARPA's Microelectromechanical Systems, or MEMS, uh, research. And during that time, he was um, reportedly responsible for uh, a little more than, than half of all federal electronics technology investments. That's pretty significant. And he openly admits that during that time, he worked closely with both the FBI and the CIA mm-hmm. institutions that every American should know and love. Anyway, and of course, he's um technology pioneer, the World Economic Forum as well. Yeah, so yes. It's, it's sinister ties still keep going. Um, it, yes. Mm-hmm. Is he a good example of a man who works in the realm of public-private partnerships? 
Yeah, you could, you could say so. Um, I, he sort of did that, uh, you know, after two, like, like, a like Dugan, he left, uh, DARPA in 2001 before coming back in the Obama administration. So sort of was there in the Clinton era, then came back for the Obama era, both of these guys, right? But after uh, 9-11 in 2001, um, he was basically it, more in the, the academic space of that, because a lot of times public-private partnerships, uh, when they're rolled out, uh, often involve academia to a significant, significant degree. And basically, this was... Um, an office uh, made out of Carnegie Mellon University where he was hired that was called the Office for Security Technologies. And basically it was, um, you know, the academia partnering with the private sector to meet the national security needs of the federal government after 9-11. So, you know, you could argue that's that's quite similar. And during that time, he also um, made his own uh, microelectromechanical systems company and all of this stuff that obviously was involved um, in that type of work as well. Um, but I, I do want to point out uh, that uh, in addition to being on a welcome leap, and I mentioned earlier, he was at that that Draper's uh, lab uh, was that was in charge of that for several uh, years. Um, he's also on the board of directors of Galvani Bioelectronics, and this is pretty significant because uh, Galvani. Well, you may have heard about them in some of my reporting on Operation Warp Speed last year, because the chairman of the board for a long time was the former head of GlaxoSmithKline's Global Vaccines Program, uh, Monsef Salawi, um, put in charge of Operation Warp Speed, chairman of the board of Galvani Bioelectronics. Uh, Galvani Bioelectronics as a company is a joint venture of GlaxoSmithKline. Already mentioned their ties to the Wellcome Trust and the Google subsidiary Verily. Um, and by the way, Verily um, is also doing a lot of the COVID-19 testing in the United States and illegally uh, taking, uh, well, I would argue it's illegal, but they've somehow gotten away with it of using COVID tests to essentially harvest um, Americans' uh, genomic data, um, yeah. <laughs> um, which Google's trying to use to superpower their healthcare AI algorithms that they're actively developing, some of them with the U.S. military uh, right now. So it, it's interesting to see that he's on the board of this GlaxoSmithKline-Google uh, combination, considering now he's at Welcome, uh, the Welcome Leap of the Welcome Trust, GlaxoSmithKline and the Welcome Trust, and then previously worked at Google and set up their DARPA equivalent. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think um, a lot of people have got to, they've got, the people listening at home have got to realize something. Even though these people come out with all of their ideas of what they want the future to look like, even though they say they want to implant this or they want to implant that, they want these technologies to be used widely in two, three, four years. And even though lots of people report this because it needs to be reported, don't believe that they're actually going to manage it to do it. Because I mean, you, you, I can't, I can't buy an ice cream with a credit card in a park at the moment because, because the technology isn't far enough advanced to be able for the card machine to work properly. We're, we're not living in, um, the technological peak of the technological revolution. We're right at the bottom level. And for what a lot of the things these guys want to pull off mean that they assume other things that haven't been, um, allowed before are going to be able to take the place to actually lead them to their, fantasy imagination their destination whatever you you want to call it so there's a lot of people who who will just use you know uh fear porn about what they say as though it's going to come true whatever but it only comes true if you don't do anything about it you don't fight back about it you don't expose them and you don't show them so there's an element where people need to to, to uh, really get into exposing these people um and not believing their hype 
at the same time. Yeah, no, great point. I, I've been saying that a lot in interviews recently. Um, so in the interest of time, I'm going to skip uh, the main person. There's two people at the Welcome Trust or involved with the Welcome Trust that are directors at Welcome Leap, uh, Jeremy Farrar and I think Mike Ferguson um, is the other guy. Uh, since we already talked about the Welcome Trust enough at the the beginning, if you're interested for more information on, on Farrar specifically, I'd refer you to this article because um, we have more to get to today. Um, but the last person I do want to mention in terms of leadership, the other top leadership position at Welcome Leak. So you have you have uh, Regina Dugan as CEO, you have Ken Gabriel as COO, and then the lead director of Welcome Leap is this guy named Jay Flatley. Uh, Flatley is a longtime head of a company called Illumina uh, that you may have never heard of, but they're a San Diego-based gene sequencing uh, company that basically dominates the field of genomics. Basically, every... Um, company <laughs> in the West and, and possibly globally uh, um, that uh, offers consumer gene sequencing for whatever reason uses machines produced by Illumina. And someone like 20, the head of 23andMe, and Wojcicki, who, yes, is the wife of Google co-founder Sergey Brin and the sister of YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki, uh, she openly uh, said in a profile in Illumina that they're the ruler of this whole universe and no one knows that, uh, referring to DNA sequencing and analysis. So that's very interesting. We consider this, this effort to uh, bring precision medicine and gene-based medicine uh, into to the forefront that this is one of the key uh, people here. And actually in 2016, um, they launched an aggressive five-year plan, of course, that, uh, you know, if you do the math, that fi aggressive five-year plan uh, concludes this year, uh, where they were going to try and make a global push towards gene-focused vaccines and therapies um, and aggressively bring genomics out of research labs and into doctor's offices, making it a mm -hmm. normalized part of everyday medicine for regular people. And at the same time, also pushing for humans to be gene tested from birth to grave for not just health purposes, but also commercial purposes. And this is, of course, Jay Flatley of this company is, of course, another guy uh, intimately involved with the World Economic Forum, uh, speaking at several panels to this effect about how we can rethink biology and reimagine the world um, all through uh, the joys of genomic sequencing um, of babies at birth, which uh, some people at the panel flatly was at that the WEF hosted uh, said should eventually become mandatory. Um, so so, you know, these are the types of people we're dealing with. One thing I want to say before you go on too far away from uh, the topic, Jeremy Farrar, even though we're not going to discuss him in full here, um, there's a, a commonality between someone we may discuss in a little bit, uh, a woman called Kate Lampard, Jeremy Farrar, Jay Flatley. All of these people have some form uh, uh, like key linchpin gatekeepers of real data that can expose what's happening in the halls of power. Jeremy Farrar um, is so important to the actual the Fauci emails showed that Jeremy Farrar was calling the shots basically on the global response. It was what he says how people should, how government should respond is the way it happened. Um, Jay Flatley is the gatekeeper of the data that comes from all the COVID um, testing because the majority of it will go through Illumina machines and will be tested in ways that Illumina set up to, to be functional with the machines that are probably updated via external uh, processes so if they wanted to change how things work they probably could just saying not saying that they have done that and a woman we could talk about 
later Kate Lampard, who's kind of the gatekeeper of um, some of the more controversial things that have happened in the UK over the past 20 years, um, including the, doing a lot of the investigations into Jimmy Savile on behalf of the government, uh, doing investigations to a place called Kendall House, which I've talked about, which was a care home where a lot of the girls got um, abused, raped. Um, they got drugged nearly all of the time and they were having experimental drugs used on them. Um, the, the, the woman who was actually administering the drugs, um, her husband worked for GlaxoSmithKline's, uh, one of those units at the time. So it's like there's lots of connections with the other things too. But these people, these are the, 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 the importance cannot be overemphasized. It's really important to realize that these are the key people at the top deciding exactly what you see and what you don't see. Seeing, uh, managing the data as it comes through, as it comes through and making it safe for, for mass consumption. So these people are, are really important. Jay Flatley is definitely one of those with a link of Illumina where he's not there anymore. Um, but he's still, uh, is well, on he, the board. He's I chairman think. of the board of directors yeah. and still basically runs it. Uh, they put a previous Microsoft executive as his in as his successor. Yeah, but he's still basically in charge. I always assume that once people do something illegal, I'm just saying this one, once people do something, they tend to want to distance themselves from it at the same time. So I don't know if that's happening there, but it's something that people do. Well, I think, well, he, uh, Flatley's also uh, gotten more involved with some other companies that he's joined the board of. So I think he's trying to exert more influence over things that Illumina is not directly involved in itself as a company, uh, while still essentially make, uh, signing off on the big decisions uh, that company makes. I mean, that's my, that's mm. my opinion. Uh, but since we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, the people behind Welcome Leap, who are obviously... Um, not good. <laughs> um, you know, let's, it's important to look at the type of stuff, the programs, there's four of them, um, that they're funding because, I mean, they, this is a multi, multi-million dollar organization. Um, you know, e each of their programs is like tens of millions of dollars in funding. Um, and they expect to finish them all within five to 10 years. Okay. Um, so this is definitely something we should be looking at. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, it, it is possible that some of these technologies, um, won't actually succeed the way they hope for them to, but uh, either way, they'll definitely have major consequences. Um, yeah. Well, I think a lot of these these uh, experiments they're doing will lead on to things we don't know yet, we we don't understand yet, and we have no knowledge of yet. So, I mean, it's moving also fast, and progress seems to be exponential, especially within technology over history. Um, so, I'm sure there's a, a lot more to come that comes from these things that we don't expect. Right. So, um, the first program to, to start off then, the, the first program of Welcome Leaf, well, the first one they announced, they call HOPE, uh, which stands for Human Organs Physiology and Engineering. Uh, you can guess from the name that it's essentially about bioengineering human organs. Um, so basically, there's two main program goals or research thrusts, um, as, as they call it. Um, the first one is basically to grow and recreate um, human organ systems that, according to them, will have a functional immune system. They say this is so they don't have to use animal uh, trials for drugs anymore. But when you consider that a lot of these people and actors um, were <laughs> involved, um, you know, in the COVID-19 vaccines, for example, which largely skipped animal trials, mm -hmm. um, and then were allowed to go straight to um, 
well, essentially it's still experimentation on, on people on for another right. year and a half or something. Right. So, you know, they're, they're allowed doing that since these are fundamentally unethical people, as we've already talked about. Um, you know, it, that even though I am obviously not a fan of animal experimentation, period, I'm just not. Um, I don't really trust them to, uh, be honest <laughs> about this because it would just allow them to take, uh, any sort of a drug or intervention they develop uh, into human trials more quickly um, using a system they develop and fundamentally control. Um, and obviously the, uh, the results of that, of those trials could be easily manipulated. What do you think they'll uh, favor or not favor big pharma and, and, and the stuff that they, they want to uh, test on, on people and put out um, a lot of unfortunate precedents have been set in the COVID-19 era that I definitely think could, um, you know, make that first uh, program goal while it may sound nice to some people. Um, you know, I think it's important we consider there's an obvious uh, possibility for an ulterior motive there. Yeah, well, when you're dealing with gene editing and farming organs, you should, it should be a lot of scrutiny attached, really. Yeah, well, they're claiming to be able to synthesize the immune system from scratch, too, which is also kind of like, hmm, um, you know, uh, they can say they did that and claim they, they did that. But it's obviously, you know, like a lot of these other things that have been promoted recently, not necessarily going to be uh, verified by independent actors free of conflicts of interest. So really, well, again, who knows? It, just mentioning that, I mean, the Fauci emails again, I, I don't mean to, to bring them up too much, but uh, I, I mean, things... Uh, there showed that they could write a, a paper that would be released in Nature by serious scientists within eight days to cover up something. So that's pretty. They they can work fast at doing these things, and they can work fast at, at trying to manipulate the narrative when they want to. Sorry, go on. Right. No, it's fine. So uh, I, I'm going to go through these programs pretty quickly because there's another uh, organization like this that we want to cover. Um. So the second goal of this is to basically. Uh, they say grow human organs that could be transla uh, transplanted into people, but they say that may not actually succeed. So in the short term, we're going to short to making biological synthetic hybrid organ systems. In other words, what are essentially transhumanist organs yeah. that can be transplanted into people. Um, so that's um, a pretty significant uh, step in the transhumanist direction to be sure, uh, organs Nikisha that Maris. the biological, yeah, well, the organs on the biological side that are grown and fused with technology, uh, by people tied to, uh, you know, the Wellcome Trust and, uh, DARPA, Google, Facebook. Um, it's, it's definitely, um, <laughs> Pretty Orwellian. Speaking of mm -hmm. Orwellian, it's best to go to what I think is the most abhorrent program of Welcome Leap of All, which they call the first 1000 days promoting healthy brain networks, uh, which focuses specifically on infants from three months to toddlers of three years of age who are its primary test subjects. Um, and this is, uh, just, um, it, I mean, 1KD, they call it, don't they? They call it 1KD. That's, if you want to go yeah. and search 1KD, you'll probably find a bit of information about it yourself. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, as soon as you start heading towards scientific experimentation on children, then you're risking opening a floodgate that will only end in tragedy. Yeah. So essentially they're like the other program. There's a couple distinct program goals, but in this case they're sequential. Uh, so first they want to use, um, 
wearables, constant 24-7 surveillance of children, um, of their respiratory rate, their heart rate, uh, eye tracking technology, um, constant visual auditory and motion data, including what they sound like, what they hear, how they move, their reaction time. I mean, just basically acclimating uh, little babies and young children to the yeah. constant invasive surveillance. It's amazing that once, once parents trust them enough, they 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 will jump on board with all of these things i think there's a lot of people out there who don't seem to understand what um type of psychological effect that may have on a child just being monitored knowing you're being monitored all of the time as you're growing up is a bit of a strange one i can't realize what that would what would that would make someone uh become Right. So anyway, um, the reason they want to surveil those kids is to collect millions upon millions of data points that they can use uh, for basically to uh, monitor and map how a child's brain, a baby's brain from baby to toddler uh, grows and develops in order to make uh, what is program goal number two, what they call creating an in silico or basically synthetic AI model of a child's brain. Uh, this is an obvious effort to trigger the uh, singularity, I would argue, um, because they haven't been able to do that yet. And I think they think if they can basically recreate a young child's brain and that, um, plas- that plasticity that, that's just known in child's brains, like why they acquire languages and knowledge, uh, so much more easily than, than uh, adult brains in a lot of cases. And all of that would allow them to, uh, reach- it seems like, yeah, so it seems like very simplistic thinking. It seems like very simplistic thinking. These people are intelligent uh, enough not to. Uh, you'd think they're intelligent enough not to. 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 to uh, they seem to be going through each stage one by one to try and trigger some form of singularity. So this seems like an obvious decision, I suppose, to recreate a baby's brain in AI and then develop from there and develop the way up because they look at it so simplistically. They look at it through human eyes and everything has to be a human, but to get this um they've got to go through humans right so anyway um after that the so you know first they want to map kids brains to make this model that they then produce into basically an ai synthetic brain but then they want to go and within 10 years they want 80 percent of children doing this before the age of three to essentially have their brain shaped to match the synthetic model right and they say this is a way to prevent uh, people, uh, children from falling behind in uh, their cognitive abilities. Mm-hmm. And right? who decides what the perfect synthetic model is for someone's brain? The I Welcome mean, Trust and DARPA. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm saying stay away. <laughs> That's what. I'm yeah. Saying. Well, no, ex- exactly. Um, and so it's really crazy because this is, um, you know, basically the, the 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 destruction of uh childlike creativity and learning and and forcing individuality at its root. Um, and is really, if you've ever read the original dystopian novel that, um, arguably both Orwell and Huxley, uh, stole from, uh, we, we uh, this is essentially what they said, uh, what, what the author of that, of that book said would happen back in the 1920s. Hey, don't tell me too much. I got it on the bookshelf. I'm going to read it soon. All right. Well, uh, I would recommend that other people read it as well because it's, okay. it's quite insightful. Um, so I, I mean, this is a really just insane program. Um, and really, I just think there needs to be, um, some, some pushback to the, to these people for even considering, uh, doing this because what they openly say is they also want to use this to quote risk stratify children, uh, and predict 
you know, develop interventions to make developing brains fit this model, this AI model they want to develop. Um, it's pretty nuts. And if you actually read uh, the document itself, uh, the program description, the official one, which I encourage you to do, um, it somewhat implies that they're going to be using this first on children that don't have parents or come from disadvantaged homes, uh, specifically like foster children, uh, children in government care, uh, claiming that they're more likely which is probably true uh, in general, though, but for environmental reasons, obviously, um, to have uh, problems, learning difficulties uh, that you know their uh, that that you know their peers with uh, functional uh, or more they, functional families do not have. So yeah, yeah uh, or that they want to get rid of. I think that's more key to it. I think they they have dysfunctionalities that they want to get rid of. They decide what's dysfunctional or not, and that, I mean this is a slippery slope to hell, isn't it? These well, it's it's not even. Really, if you read the thing, it's not even really about just making, getting rid of underdeveloped cognitive function. They also say, not only can we use it to take people from underdeveloped to normal, we can use it to take them from normal to augmented, essentially. So, I mean, this is, um, you know, a this is essentially eugenics in action, uh, being tested on literal babies and toddlers. It's, it's totally mental. Yeah. Yeah. So the third, um, program, yeah, people have heard of Delta variants. And uh, what's this? Uh, it's, it's called Delta Tissue, uh, funded to the tune of $55 million for now. Um, so basically, this is uh, the, the program uh, of Welcome Leap that focuses specifically on this precision medicine, uh, which is going to be, you know, this meta. this has really got underway in the US uh, in an open way uh, under the Obama administration. Surprise, surprise, when uh, Regina Dugan was in charge of DARPA. Um, but it's also, you know, Biden, uh, when he was vice president under Obama, also very involved in that. And of course, uh, even now is, is promoting this stuff as is his science, uh, top, uh, top science advisor, um, Eric Lander, the Epstein funded, uh, likely eugenicist individual. Anyway, I've written about him plenty of times. Um, so I, I, I won't go into that, uh, there, but they claim, you know, that this program will allow them to eliminate uh, disease forever. Uh, and basically, it's a way to have AI uh, profile uh, all of your cells and tissues to see if you will develop a, a disease before the onset of symptoms. This is a long standing goal of DARPA, uh, going back to their uh, prophecy program, um, which I think actually started in 2010. So Dugan would have been director of, of DARPA during that time. <laughs> uh, funny how this uh, all comes full circle. Um, but it's, it's continued to be a main uh, objective of the U.S. military and a lot of, um, you know, Silicon Valley companies are on board. Uh, I mentioned in the article, and as I reported last year, uh, the Pentagon and Google um, teamed up directly last September uh, to basically predict using AI if you'll get cancer before you show any symptoms of cancer. Um, and of course, now they're trying to use the mRNA vaccines, or they soon will use the mRNA vaccines as a way to tell you they will prevent cancer or treat cancer perhaps before it even shows, because they'll say, oh, we sequence your genes and you're uh, susceptible to this cancer, but we'll give you this mRNA thing and then you won't get it. Uh, that is the future of medicine they're trying to create. And that is essentially what Delta Tissue um, is all about. They do like the Greek uh, letters, don't they? They do not do like the Greek alphabet to try and make something sound a little bit more scientific and futuristic. Um, they launched a program last week as well, the last of the programs, is it? Um, yeah, mm -hmm. it's called multi-channel psych. They call it revealing mechanisms of, uh, I think it's pronounced, uh, anhedonia. 
which they claim is focused on uh, creating complex biological treatments for depression. Um, but the reason they use anhedonia there is because they define anhedonia as being the most significant um, symptom of depression, uh, but they define it as an impairment in the effort-based reward system. Uh, they note in, a, in, in the small print of their official program description later on uh, that they're, uh, the reason they chose that is because they're uh, not interested in uh, investigating uh, how to fix other aspects of depression, like reduced consumatory pleasure, the general experience of pleasure, or the inability to experience pleasure, i.e. things that would actually make depressed people happy. Uh, they're instead interested in how to investigate uh, impairments to the effort-based reward system, i.e. anhedonia, uh, essentially things that get in the way of a depressed individual being able to be a good worker bee, uh, not necessarily about improving quality or enjoyment of life. Uh, that's a pretty significant uh, footnote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. A lot of this has uh, has elements of, of fantasy uh, cartoons from the past, like Judge Dredd and Megacities, multi-channel psych, where they have like uh, psych units and etc. They they seem to they seem to be projecting a couple of things that they want to uh, live forever and they want to be psychic. I think that's what a lot of these people well, are. Well. Uh, um Instead, I would say that multi-channel psych is more similar to the 1KD uh, program for children um, in that it, it wants to essentially, under the guise of treating depression, develop quote-unquote interventions that are essentially brain stimulation and brain manipulation to make people behave and act differently and uh, basically make them uh, dopamine addicts. Uh, that can just complete tasks, gamified tasks in, in the new, you know, fourth industrial revolution uh, work model all day long. In relation to the, the, the psych stuff, though, it's um, that is truly uh, something that's come from fantasy novels. Some of this stuff is, is it, it links around his preemptive uh, awareness of illness, preemptive crime, uh, preemptive is all of the thing that's going around. And I think it's a big projection of wanting to know the future. Everybody fears the future. Um, everybody fears death. And these are the two things that they go on about. These people go on about all of the time. Right. So one of the ways they want to, uh, what they want to basically get out of this program is basically developing what they say are new scalable measurement tools, which are, if, if you read between the lines in this program description, again, they're talking about wearables, which of course ties into the whole, um, internet of bodies phenomenon that they wish to create. Uh, that's openly talked about by the World Economic Forum and the Rand Corporation and lots of these guys. Um, and actually, uh, Jeremy Lafredo had an article for Unlimited Hangout on that um, a month or two ago uh, that I encourage you to check out if you're interested. Uh, but essentially, this wearable, uh, they want it to be able to quantify your mood, yes, uh, based on your voice, facial expression, etc. cetera, uh, quantify your sleep, movement, reward system functioning in the brain, and effort, motivation, and energy levels, your social interactions, among other things. Uh, it, it, this is crazy because uh, if you... Uh, remember a few months ago, Amazon released their own quote unquote fitness wearable that track, uh, that tracks sleep, movement, your voice, uh, and claims to be able to quantify your emotional state and mood. Um, but imagine a world, for example, we already mentioned how they're developing this wearable ostensibly because they want to, uh, make sure that your, uh, the reward processing part of your brain doesn't prevent you from being a good, uh, worker bee. So obviously has applications for the corporate world and making sure their workers stay in line. Uh, so the, the mention of being able to use this wearable to monitor mo 
motivation and effort uh, is, is pretty significant um, in that context as well. I mean, imagine a world where this becomes mandated by specific corporations. What corporation won it specifically in a world where, you know, automation becomes, um, you know, uh, super normalized and, and just a fact of life. Most people are out of work, obviously, less jobs to choose from. So you can exploit your workers more than ever. And as, you know, people like... Well, people who work in Amazon factories will already know this. Their ma- time is managed down to the second. Uh, they have to do everything in certain ways and they look, they, 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 they're worn to the bone. Right. Well, you know, as, as you all know, what Harari said, who we, who we mentioned earlier, you know, it's better to be exploited than irrelevant. <laughs> right. So, so basically he's saying the next era of workers and the fourth industrial revolution will be exploited because it's better to have uh, this tech on your body or in your body than be without it and thus irrelevant. Right? Yeah, is he and- a whole? Would you want to be, would you prefer to be shot or would you prefer to be stabbed? <laughs> well, that's how people like you and I may look at it. But, uh, you know, the, the elites are looking at it a bit differently, thinking mm. if they can drive people into increasingly desperate situations that people will choose to be exploited as opposed to being, quote unquote, irrelevant. Um, mm. But anyway, um, one of the other things they want to actively monitor with this is something that's basically the axis, uh, the HPA axis, which is like the axis between the adrenal glands, the pituitary gland, mm-hmm. and the hypothalamus in the brain and this regulates everything from stress reactions to your immunity but also fertility in the human body so keep in mind that a lot of these uh scientists and and, uh, things that bill gates for example has funded like this um this uh insertable into the body that can uh, basically be uh functions as birth control a fertility control that can be wire wirelessly turned on and off at the whim of the person with the magic button and stuff like that. I mean, this isn't um, that this isn't that different. So, you know, that's pretty, that's pretty insane. So yeah, these are the programs Welcome Leap is currently developing. It's very disturbing uh, when you consider the people and organizations behind it, uh, their uh, agenda, their ideology, and their, uh, their power, essentially, um, to make these things reality, given uh, the influence in, in, mo- in, their, in their money uh, significantly. Completely. Completely unaccountable power, seeing as that they're a charity. They're supposed to be a charitable organization, um, like Welcome Trust and Welcome Leap. It, it, it's just so far removed what people expect science to be nowadays, where it's carefully monitored to make sure it's happening safely. This it, it seems like they're running amok. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Um, so yeah, I think we've covered enough about Welcome Leap. Of course, if you are interested in learning more. Um, you can refer to um, the article I wrote that Johnny contributed to on unlimitedhangout.com called A Leap Toward Humanity's Destruction. Um, and if yeah, I would encourage you to uh, look at the links contained therein that include uh, the links to the official program descriptions of these things that the Welcome Leap is currently developing. Um, with that being said, I think it's uh, worth moving on to the other um organization we're going to cover today. We may not be able to go super in depth uh, because of the time, but they are uh, definitely worth mentioning uh, nonetheless. So this other group, I'll just introduce them briefly and you're welcome to go wherever you want um, with them, Johnny. Um, mm-hmm. They're called the Trinity Challenge. They're named the Trinity Challenge because of the uh, 
the chair of the board who supposedly created this, uh, Dame Sally Davies, um, is from Trinity College at, I believe, Oxford University, or maybe it's Cambridge. Um, can't quite remember. Um, but anyway, it's named for that college, uh, within the university at which she teaches. Um, so the Trinity challenge they, they claim is, uh, they say to safeguard the lives and livelihoods, uh, their purpose, sorry, is to safeguard the lives and livelihoods of one billion more people by using data and analytics to better identify, respond to, and recover from health emergencies. So for all intents and purposes, it's about funding, um, and empowering organizations that offer, uh, quote unquote solutions they claim will prevent COVID-19 from ever happening again. Almost all of them, I'm sure you will be surprised to know, um, <laughs> involve, uh, surveillance or, uh, censorship or, you know, things like that, uh, to some degree. And they sort of hinted that by talking about using data and analytics. Uh, obviously yeah. a lot of involvement, uh, from Silicon Valley. Um, well, it was obviously, uh, one, one of those things that popped up for me. And I noticed, uh, it popped up for you as well. Um, one of their, their, but go, go on, sorry, continue. Um, all I was going to say was that, uh, it's like, quite amazing how many applications come into these uh organizations from what span where i we've only just heard of the trinity challenge but they've had 340 applications from 61 countries they say um uh, and then the 16 the top 16 get into the finals so so where do these guys come from where do they where how do they uh do, do they only apply within research journals for people to be involved in this or um is there a much more systematic way so um you basically go to the website, as I understand it, and you apply through there, though they appear to be partnered to a degree in terms of submitting applications with uh, MIT's Solve, uh, which is about getting uh, different uh, startups and, uh, you know, um, social impact innovation plans uh, funded. Uh, they basically, uh, they just, MIT Solve, they just, is, describes itself as a marketplace for social impact innovation with a mission to solve world challenges. So you will find a lot of the, uh, Trinity Challenge, uh, applications applied through Solve and then basically checked, uh, Trinity Challenge, or you can also apply directly through, uh, the website itself. Well, you could. Now they've already announced the winners. Um, so the Trinity Challenge is already on its way to developing, uh, its chosen, <laughs> uh, is it, is it the infotech one i didn't i didn't no 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 but um i'll, I'll get to that in a second okay. so um you know uh before we get to the the people on the board and i'll let you uh deal with them johnny because some of them are quite uh telling um i do want to dwell on the founding members of the trinity challenge because even though it's framed as something you know being from a uk university and coming out of academia you look at the founding members uh that's hardly um <laughs> <laughs> Hardly the case. So um, what's important here, by the way, is that the winners of the Trinity Challenge get to partner with and work with the data uh, of the founding members that, that fit their particular research proposal. So essentially, some of the founding members that I'm about to talk about um, are going to basically operate through these award winners of the Trinity Challenges as, as fronts. 
uh, for, for different, uh, purposes. And of course, as founding members, they're involved in choosing which, um, finalists win among other things. So, um, on their website, Trinity Challenge says, uh, that their founding members include some of the world's best minds and most influential leaders from business, academia, and the social sector. Um, you will see, uh, in terms of universities, it's the University of Hong Kong, University of Cambridge, Northeastern University in the US, and Imperial College London. Hooray! The people responsible for, uh, the erroneous lockdown models that, um, caused the economies around the world to be shut down. Um, and some of, and Imperial College's research proposal for this was totally insane. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but beyond that, um, you have Microsoft, Facebook, and Google are here as founding members. GlaxoSmithKline, who we've already talked about. Did you mention Bill and Melinda Gates? Or? Oh, not yet. I was getting there. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation is next. Everybody knew already. Uh, McKinsey and Company, the uh, influential global, global consultancy firm uh, par excellence. Uh, something called the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation that, if you look into it, is very much involved with transhumanism uh, type related research under the guise of healthcare, um, specifically in the field of neuroscience. Um, and then you have some financial companies like Aviva that are partnered with the World Economic Forum. Uh, you have Tencent, uh, the Chinese uh, technology giant. So not only do you have uh, major representation uh, from uh, the US Silicon Valley, but one of their main equivalents in China as well. And then one group that really stood out to me that you may not, uh, that some listeners may not know by name, is called called the Global Virome Project, and they're pretty interesting. So basically, the Global Virome Project uh, is a combination of the USAID people and the PREDICT program. USAID, of course, being a uh, notorious CIA cutout, um, <laughs> and the PREDICT program being intimately involved with EcoHealth Alliance, which, surprise, Peter Daszak of EcoHealth Alliance is one of the main people also at the Global Virome Project. And EcoHealth Alliance was awarded a large prize at the Trinity Challenge quite recently. Um, and you may have heard of EcoHealth Alliance on and off over the last year and a half because of their intimate involvement at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. For more about them, you can listen to my previous podcast with Sam Husseini. But this is really an indication of people intimately involved in the execution of uh, the the COVID-19 policies, including those that were uh, erroneous. And if you look at the Global Virum Project, uh, they're preparing for the next pandemic they say and it's um it, they they or on their, their the front page or first page of the website they say a collaborative a collaborative scientific initiative to discover zoonotic viral threats and stop future pandemics claiming basically trying to insinuate that there is no such thing as a a lab made viral threat right right well the, i mean that's what eco health alliance and these usa people have been doing the whole time despite their conflict of interest in doing so and peter Daszak's role in that has been uh, under a lot more scrutiny in the past couple of months. But one thing I do want to add about the Global Virome Project is that when it was founded, you also had involvement from uh, George Gao of the Chinese CDC, a prominent participant in Event 201, um, if, as you may remember. And uh, the initial meeting that led to the creation of this project took place at the Rockefeller Center in Bellagio, Italy, which is also, uh, if, if, if you uh, know anything about the origins of the World Economic Forum or read 
uh, Johnny's piece on Klaus Schwab, you will know that the Club of Rome, a uh, globalist think tank intimately tied, uh, Malthusian also an arguably eugenicist, uh, tied to the World Economic Forum uh, intimately since its origin, was also uh, forged at Rockefeller-owned properties in Bellagio, Italy as well. Um, pretty interesting. So uh, pretty interesting to say the least. So these are the, like, you know, the founding members of this thing. Um, there's a couple others I didn't um, get into, um, uh, including, uh, what's this one called? Um, wreck it, uh, which yeah. uh, a lot of prominent brands that people in the US and UK will be familiar with, like Lysol, Clearasil, Airwick, Veet, Vanish, Durex, Detal, uh, I mean, a lot of... They're making a lot of money at the moment. Yeah, Woolite, you know, a lot of people very... Uh, stuff you see in the supermarket all the time. Anyway, they're uh, some of the founding partners of this as well. So you have some major, you know, global corporations who you may not know by name, but you certainly know their products, um, you know, all coming together. But um, I think the Global Virum Project and, of course, Silicon Valley and the Gates Foundation, GlaxoSmithKline, um, them being involved in this is hugely um, significant. I would argue because it shows that a lot of people that, you know, up to this point were focused on engineering and, and having certain policies for COVID-19 implemented um, in specific countries and around the world have now moved on. Just as we've seen with Malcolm Leap, they are now planning the post-COVID era, what comes next. And so Trinity Challenge uh, is focusing on different areas than Welcome Leap, but it's very much that same uh, shift in agenda. So you don't have the Welcome Trust here, but you have the Gates Foundation here, and you have Silicon Valley, and you have Imperial College, and you have EcoHealth Alliance, and these guys. So I think it is pretty significant. Yeah. Um, well, Dame Sally Davis, we're going to talk about the actual board of um, Trinity Challenge. Uh, Dame Sally Davis, uh, who is, of course, from Trinity College in Cambridge, if you wanted to know which, which uh, if it's Oxford or Cambridge, it's uh, definitely Cambridge. They appear on University Challenge every now and again. Um, she's an extremely interesting one because um, from uh, 2011 to 2019, she was actually Chief Medical Officer for England um, and Chief Medical medical advice to the UK government. So that's quite a long period just before the COVID crisis and just before the taking over of um, Chief Medical Officer now, I think, uh, is Chris, uh, not Chris Whitty, um, Patrick Valance. Um, so so Dame, Dame Sally, so she's been um, uh, seen as uh, knighted by the, the Queen of England. Well done. Um, she's also uh, been involved with UN projects, World Health Organization projects, um, Global Health Security Initiative in 2015. Uh, she's she's hanging around with the usual suspects, uh, and she's obviously she's obviously uh, an establishment girl. Um, alongside her, is Steve Davies, who isn't Davis, they're no relation. Um, he's from Stanford. Not a surprise. Uh, senior strategy advisor um, <clears throat> and uh, interim China country office director at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They, they always uh, like to come up. So maybe that's why it was so easy for Bill and Melinda Gates to invest in the Trinity Challenges because one of their guys is on, on the board anyway. Yeah, one well, of their guys is insider. 
you know, I think, you know, they, they claim anyway, officially, that this was all Dame Sally Davies' idea or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But obviously, the involvement of the Gates Foundation to have one of their uh, top people, uh, the, the lead of their China programs, essentially, on the board suggests that maybe she was visited by people from the Gates Foundation, which, of course, uh, have not only fund a considerable amount of UK media outlets, but also lots of uh, academics in the UK as well. Mm-hmm. So this uh, Steve Davies is um, uh, former president CEO of PATH, which was a, a global health and uh, innovation organization. It's uh, vaccines, in, yeah. Yeah, former director of um, of McKinsey and Company, innovation at McKinsey and Company. This guy's got uh, a record that you would expect uh, with degrees from Princeton, Washington, and Columbia. Um, speaks and writes regularly around the place, but I think he's uh, he, he's not as interesting as some of the other people along with sally spensley isn't um so interesting she's really the accountant of the group um she she's a trustee of the royal college of psychiatrists uh where she sits on the finance and management committee uh lives in london obviously a very establishment girl but the one that really interests me the trinity challenge member that really really makes blows me away is kate lampard cbe um cbe means she's been honored uh of course by the the queen and the royal family um kate i came across on a few occasions in the past when i was researching abuse uh, at mccown called kendall house uh where they were testing uh drugs like i was saying earlier they were testing drugs on young girls um in the 80s and when they needed to uh write a report on that they went to kate lampard's company veritas where um they they're an investigation company right in the heart of like westminster london so right near the parliament where the big boys go to make sure all their their the information comes out as they want it to so really they i i mean that's not what they advise us they say oh we're an investigation we investigate things but she led multiple investigations into uh jimmy savile uh case and a lot of the information we know they say oh we handle it sensitively sensitively um with sensitivity but they they they're just trying to hide a lot of what happened i mean jimmy savile uh raped over 500 uh girls in this country and and that was one of um he had so many links within uh royal family and and the government of the day um really close with margaret thatcher and people it was such an awkward investigation they obviously needed to get someone good in on that so kate lampard was a person they got in uh, she also worked um for uh they were commissioned by the board of circo uh to investigate the yarlswood immigration removal centers and the treatment of uh the people the detainees who were there um she's your go-to girl for for she's mrs wolf she's mr wolf of of this sort of thing she she's been Oh, there's not much about her around, you know. She, you, you'll find about two pictures of Kate Lampard on on online. But if you read any of the reports written about sexual abuse cases that Veritas has been involved in, nearly every single one of them says Kate, all the information goes to Kate Lampard. All of the people go through Kate Lampard. Everything goes through Kate Lampard all of the time. No one else gets to see this information first, but Kate Lampard. So it's it's very interesting that she seems like a real gatekeeper of some of the most sensitive. Uh, information that's ever been uh, outed in in um, in Britain. Yeah, pretty interesting to have her on the board. Um, basically, uh, the UK government's mop up woman. 
Yeah, completely ex- extraordinary uh, to see her on on this boy. I, I mean, when you when you first found Trinity Challenge and we started looking into them, to to find out she was uh, on the board is just astounding. I mean, she gets around; she really does, um, and she is a mop up lady. She's fantastic at her job, obviously, because she's done it multiple times, and they couldn't have been anything more complicated than the Jimmy Savile case. Um, she also uh, the people who were actually on the review panels for. The, who she put on the review panels um, were also in Kendall House on the Jimmy Savile investigation were also, a couple of them were on the Kendall House investigation so she used the same staff as well uh, when they do their reports and this company, this idea of investigating for the establishment so you can have an outcome that's beneficial for you they, they're straight in Trinity Challenge, that's one of the first people they get on board, extremely interesting yeah. So um, now that we've talked a bit about the people behind Trinity Challenge, as I mentioned uh, earlier, they've already announced their award winners. Their award ceremony was on June 25th, so not that long ago. Uh, they had one grand prize winner, which went to this company in Thailand. Uh, the winning uh, research proposal was called POD with two Ds, which stands for Participatory One Health Disease Detection. If you're familiar with the USAID uh, PREDICT program and the USAID people like Dennis Carroll and others who were involved at the previously mentioned Global Virome Project, uh, you will know that One Health is essentially something that has come out of USAID. Um, so, you know, that's pretty significant. And so th- this, this, the group that uh, operates this program is based in Thailand. It's called Open Dream. If you go to their website, they essentially say um, <laughs> that they are a Thai company and they don't show any non-Thai uh, natives on their board. But if you go to the program proposal for the specific program, uh, you will see that an individual named Matt Parker, who is not from Thailand at all, um, and describes himself as a social entrepreneur with a focus on Southeast Asia, is one of the, the leads on this particular program that won. If you go to his LinkedIn, uh, you will see that he was intimately involved with Salesforce. Um, Salesforce, of course, Mark Binioff's company intimately involved and tied up with the World Economic Forum. Mark Binioff is uh, the inaugural chair of the World Economic Forum's uh, committee for the fourth industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and a key part of that, um, uh, including the promotion of uh, inclusive capitalism, i.e. stakeholder capitalism, and other things. This is a big uh, tech guy, uh, essentially. He also used to work for Spotify um, and some... Um, some other things, but essentially Salesforce. Uh, and so it's not exactly a, a Thai company. And if you actually go to these guys' website, you'll see some of the other stuff. Uh, their other projects besides this pod program. Uh, their other one before pod, uh, is called Jane Sexbot. It is a cha- AI chatbot for, uh, child sex education. Uh, so, uh, I would encourage you to go to their website and, and look at the, the pictures and the imagery and, you know, what that was. It's, uh, it's pretty nuts. Um, uh, there, there seems to be an element of, 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 uh, two areas of the establishment crossing over the, the, you know, uh, people who deal with the, the official investigations into sexual crimes and the people inventing sex toys for kids when the sex crimes were against kids 
it seems uh, very suspicious these people are all in the same place um what one second uh, to say that at this awards the most recent awards enemy one of the speakers was um hala audi um and she she's got uh, lots of a, a background but one of the interesting things and where it connects with what we were talking about earlier is that she reviewed um uh, amr uh, antimicrobial resistance um chaired by jim o'neill um and commissioned by the prime minister and the welcome trust in 2014 so i just thought i'd mention that she's uh she's one of the ones who have been commissioned by the welcome trust so they're obviously still swimming in very much the same circles yeah no i mean that's definitely true we mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast that yeah. welcome trust and gates and all of these guys essentially swim in the same swamp right so um and to, to wrap up talking about their grand prize winner who's going to get most of the money allotted uh for the trinity challenge this pod uh, group. Well, essentially what it is, they describe it as a pilot project on surveillance and control of zoonotic diseases that could possibly infect humans and cause economic losses to villagers. They sure make it sound super nice, but if you actually look into the nuts and bolts of it, it essentially operates through Facebook, Facebook being a founding member um, or a Facebook-like app, so they'll likely be intimately involved in the execution of this. And... Um, Essentially, what happens is that, you know, uh, there's a local farm by word of mouth, an incident with some sort of animal becomes reported uh, by some uh, volunteer affiliated with this open dream uh, initiative, which is partnered with uh, USAID, <laughs> uh, surprise, and something called the Skull, the Skull Global Threats Fund that we'll talk about in a second. Um but basically, the volunteer uh, reports that to AI, an AI machine, uh, which is then verified by another machine and a One Health expert, uh, then notifying the local government, which then can come to wherever that farm was and decide to mass cull the animals, uh, quarantine the farmers, uh, you know, whatever, whatever. Uh, there's a lot of possibilities uh, there, they make it sound really nice, but this is just a, basically a surveillance system uh, for farms uh, and allowing them to yeah. basically target livestock, as we've been seeing, and as, as people like Christian Westbrook, who's been on the podcast, cover extensively. And as I'm sure it's pretty hard to ignore at this point, there is a, a global effort backed by a lot of these same people uh, to basically eliminate uh, <laughs> livestock in general and the consumption of meat by the masses. Uh, so, you know, this is pretty... Um, interesting uh in to look at from that perspective uh potentially they of course claim that uh almost all epidemics are of animal origin despite um <laughs> evidence to the contrary but that again is uh for another day um but it's just basically uh an effort to surveil uh rural areas that were previously unsurveillable um and this is focusing specifically in southeast asia and is partnered uh with some governments and uh, i guess local governments in thailand uh but one of the main partners as i mentioned earlier is the skull global threats fund uh this is named for jeffrey skull uh if you're familiar uh, with my work back at mint press on piero midiar uh, you may have come across skull's name since he is the other uh main billionaire to come out of eBay that worked under Omidyar. Um, and, uh, but Skoll uh, has basically positioned himself as the climate change activist billionaire, uh, for example, uh, funding and, and helping create uh, Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, um, among other 
documentaries, um, and his Global Threats Fund is focused specifically on pandemic preparedness and climate change. It's very similar um, if you're familiar with the Nuclear Threat Initiative, uh, which I've spoken about before. It has a lot of uh, similarities to that. So Jeff Skoll is the uh, the billionaire is the founder and director of this threat fund. And his number two, uh, the chairman is, uh, the former vice president of Google and executive director of Google.org, which is Google's philanthropic, quote unquote, philanthropic arm. Uh, and of course, he's also involved with Salesforce, uh, the World Economic Forum and the Council on Foreign Relations. Interesting to see these organizations pop up, um, over oh, and over of- again. Right. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they focus mainly on pandemics and climate change in addition to Middle East conflict, interesting, and water security um, are their main issues. So um, that is the Trinity Challenge main winner. There's a couple uh, other ones I want to touch on really quick. Uh, one of them is called Blood Counts! Exclamation yeah. point. Uh, mm-hmm. This comes out of the University of Cambridge. Um, and uh, basically what they want to do is say, uh, sort of what's been done uh, under the guise of COVID-19 testing, how people, companies have been harvesting pe- uh, people's genetic data from those tests. This blood counts uh, aims to do the same with blood tests, as they say. Uh, they say numerous blood tests are done every year, with each test producing a vast number of unused data points. Uh, what they hope to do is to get all data points out of all blood samples and turn them into a broad surveillance network to detect infectious disease outbreaks before symptoms occur in a population. Sound familiar? When you think of some mm-hmm. of the Welcome Leap programs we were talking about earlier, um, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. Um, yeah. And then the other um, main winner... Uh, is also based in uh, the UK at the University College London. It's called the Sentinel Forecasting System for Infectious mm-hmm. Disease Risk. Uh, it was going to be piloted on Africa. Again, a, a surveillance uh, mechanism and predictive, basically medical pre-crime uh, effort to uh, manage they claim uh, epidemics in uh, West Africa with targeted interventions. It's worth mentioning West Africa is frequently used uh, for unethical uh, trials and tests by the Wellcome Trust and the Gates Foundation. Mm-hmm. I did notice that um, one of the the the, the uh, projects that didn't win, uh, one of the nominees for for um, these guys that didn't win, was uh, real time data synthesis and analysis infodemic. Did you see these guys also based out yeah, of London that's, Imperial that's College? That's Imperial College. Yeah, I definitely wanted to talk about them because they're crazy. Um, if you'd if you'd like yeah, to, yeah, extremely interesting. Well, they, I mean, they, they with each of these guys, they introduce what they call a story. So you know, they like to set narratives, don't they? These people, and uh, they say the COVID nineteen induced infodemic has led to the burial of vital research and the spread of misinformation, preventing healthcare providers and policy making uh, policy makers from implementing vital learnings into practice. Uh, th- this is, of course, them double speaking all of the way through that that uh, all of this vital research has been buried by misinformation where in actual fact vital research that they're talking about is probably the uh, um, uh, papers that are made up by them yes but actually yes okay so before they announced the winners I was looking at this proposal specifically because it's so insane so this infodemic 
uh, Radaza for real-time data synthesis and analysis infodemic program, right? They specifically say as an example, Imperial College London in the early days of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, created a model uh, that showed the world needed to lock down and people didn't follow it fast enough because there were competing models, Yes, mm-hmm. and they're talking specifically about the highly discredited Neil Ferguson produced model. So what they're aiming to do with this platform is to basically take um, models and policies and scientific literature that are selected by these same crazy people and make it the only one available to mm-hmm. healthcare providers and policy Yeah, because makers. otherwise there's too much information. What you want is one person to dictate to you all of the information. This is what it comes around with all of the time because we're losing democracy we're losing any idea of what democracy was i don't think it was a very good uh, good system but we're, we're we're losing it to this idea that um really well presented versions of dictators uh they take dictatorships coming up and despots where they say you know you have to you only have to take in this one piece of information not all the information even though everybody knows to know the whole story you have to know all the information well apparently everybody doesn't know that it's turned out that 50 percent of the world are completely clueless to what the real information um, is unless they actually look up at it themselves and most people are distracted well, one thing I do want to point out, even though the Senate win the main award, uh, it's still on the MIT Solve platform is likely to be funded by someone else and they can say Trinity Challenge finalist to bump up their credentials. This is yeah, likely to be funded and implemented. Um, and they're planning to use it specifically not just in the UK, but also the United States. So yeah, that's yeah, important. really interesting, isn't it? They're, they're, yeah. they're, uh, they're, I mean, they're, they're all, they've all got their own little territory, but I think we were in danger of being cut off information-wise in, in the United Kingdom, United States from uh, a lot of information that could come to us. So we're, they're trying to put up every barrier so we don't know all of the truth. Yeah. And, I mean, that's come on. That's that's beyond suspicion. That's you've got. Um, really quick, I want to go over some of these other programs that were finalists. Um, Striata is one. Uh, they call it a command center for predictive distribution. They don't say what for, but if you read what it is, it's for <laughs> vaccines. Uh, yes. So, uh, Striata, an AI-enabled platform that brings hyper-specific insight to decision makers. It predicts who will and who won't show up for care, i.e. vaccination, forecasts supply utilization, uh, and infers capacity and capabilities for each health point or health access point, um, and the, the healthcare system as a whole. I think the Soviet Union were doing similar things to that. Well, what's interesting here is that they're pilot this in Mozambique, Sierra Leone, and Tanzania, which of course, uh, as we wrote about Unlimited Hangout, well, uh, I did did along with Jeremy Lafredo, wrote about how there was essentially a coup in Tanzania not that long ago. Um, So now they're part of this. But in addition to these countries in Africa, the United States, known for its vaccine-hesitant population, um, (laughs) is also uh, being piloted for this, uh, that's pretty significant. Um, a couple other ones uh, seek to control m- mosquito-borne diseases using AI and sensors being piloted in the US and India. Of course, people may, may know that in both Florida and I believe soon in Texas, if not already, uh, there are genetically modified mosquitoes with uh, unknown consequences on human health floating around. Uh, and if you, like me, have spent any amount of time in Florida, I was forced to live there for almost 18 years um you you will know that mosquitoes bite people a lot 
So um, I guess we'll see what happens there. Um, and of course, as I mentioned earlier, EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Daszak, right, uh, is one of the founding members of the Global Virome Project, which in turn is a founding member of the Trinity Challenge. Peter Daszak, of course, won an award from the Trinity Challenge. How surprising, oh, isn't amazing. it? I know. It's, it's just so convenient. Didn't he also speak at the most recent award as well? I yeah, think he probably did. I didn't watch yeah. it, but yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Anyway, uh, they're planning to now use EcoHealth Alliance um, of great infamy these days. Uh, now uh, we'll use artificial intelligence to map zoonotic disease risk at a fine scale with diverse data sources. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, they plan to prevent future pandemics with this. No mention, as you said earlier, of the gain of function research uh, in which they're intimately involved or their ties to the U.S. military. When was the last time that zoonotic uh, viruses actually had any impact on the world? We'll never they know. They <laughs> claim it's all the time. Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, so another one is digital diagnostics. Uh, in Africa, more AI uh, medicine uh, being implemented in the developing world under the guise of preventing pandemics. Obviously, this benefits the Silicon Valley figures that are all founding, uh, the top ones are all founding members of this Trinity Challenge. Um the other one is, again, um, a, a, a mobility data uh, harvesting platform, basically phone data, that claims it will transform disease surveillance and response in emergencies, basically uh, track and trace on steroids. Um, and this is being piloted in Latin America, Chile, and Peru. Big surprise there if you're familiar what's going on with Chile right now. As we've talked about, uh, I think the last time you were on, Johnny, is when we yeah, discussed yeah, yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the United Kingdom and the United States, uh, Thailand, India, and Mozambique. Um, looks like U.S. and Mozambique are honestly <laughs> in Thailand are the most targeted by uh, the Trinity Challenge, which is pretty interesting uh, to yeah. have the U.S. in that mix. Usually, it's just the developing world. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's I think there's a, a it's an infrastructure thing. I think they might lead back to something to do with um, Oxford and Cambridge and who, where they have bases, but uh, that's just uh, that's just me positing a guess. Right. Um, so, you know, that's the mobility thing. And, oh, I forgot to mention this digital diagnostics thing. So not only is it using these, like, AI-developed diagnostic methods, but it all gets uploaded to the cloud, everything that is recorded through these uh, diagnostic tools developed by Silicon Valley goes straight to the cloud, uh, allowing them to feed, uh, you know, their AIs with more and more information, um, which we've talked about considerably. And I think uh, the other ones as well, similar themes, uh, rapid tech-based diagnostics and increased surveillance um, of different um, different things, whether it's rural areas or sewage, which is something actually ongoing in the U.S. right now. Uh, HHS has been doing this in collaboration with Palantir. I wrote about this last year. Um, and also greater surveillance of social media as well. Sewage, social media, and other sources. Well, sewage mm-hmm. and social media seem to go increasingly together <laughs> these days. Um, <laughs> right. Um and so this other one, um, there's another one that's pretty interesting that's also being piloted in the US, UK, but also India. Um, this is coming from UVA, the University of Virginia, who, by the way, Philip Zelikow of the University of Virginia, formerly of the 9-11 Commission, is now on the COVID Truth Commission, um, Zelikow. as we talked about in the last uh, podcast with Sam. So uh, their project is called Biogym. 
biosurveillance via immunological, genomic, and epidemiological models. Um, And basically, they say uh, they will analyze with AI uh, the impact of variants on herd immunity and vaccine effectiveness. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, That'll be interesting given, uh, you know... All we hear yeah. about variants constantly um, mm-hmm. in in the news Delta these days. variant, Delta plus plus variant, Delta yes. premium variant. Um, and and the last ones I want to touch on uh, that actually got some of the top awards here. Um, it, I mean, so many of them are just based on AI, but there's one that's called a. Uh, M-E-D-S-H-R, Insights and Early Warning System. This is early warning system using social listening technology. Again, again, the preemptive technology makes me Social think, media. Yeah, they're, they're mm-hmm. all desperate to know not only what people are thinking, but what they're going to do in the future. That's 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 a real, and it really does come down to a base level, like instinct. I think that has been throughout humanity, and of course, most of the wars and everything is that these people are looking for the unachievable. Yeah, well, beyond that, we have to focus on Facebook's role here, and also Google, because you know YouTube is also a big part of this. It's not technically social media in the same way Facebook is, but people comment, people uh, interact on the chats. Um, yeah. So, you know, uh, this is really an indication that people need to get the hell off of these platforms sooner rather than later, yeah. because not only are they trying to surveil them supposedly as early warning signs of pandemics and disease, uh, people say, oh, I'm sick on Facebook or whatever. And, you know, they'll, they'll lock down the community. Or, I mean, that's yeah. basically what, what that is implying. But you have to keep in mind, too, in the U.S., uh, Facebook is now intimately part of this domestic uh, terror strategy. Um, in just the past couple days, if you read content they deem extremist, uh, which uh, several things on there have been flagged as extremists that are clearly yeah. not, such as uh, Tara Reid, who um, is, uh, has told about her experience of being sexually assaulted uh, by the current president of the U.S., Joe Biden. That's now flagged as extremist technology, her talking wow. about her experience. Yeah, it's it's nuts. Yeah. They're not even using it uh, like with with, with uh, the idea that they're they're hidden and they're behind the scenes. Yeah. They're just it's overt. It's terrible. Exactly, and that domestic terror strategy talks about how Facebook will essentially report you to the feds for having wrong think and reading the wrong type of content on their site. And so now they're using, you know, Facebook as part of the Trinity challenge is obviously going to work with all of these finalists and award winners, uh, as it says in their, in their mission statement and, and purpose and how they work. Um, you know, all the ones that mention social media, well, Facebook's the main social media company that's a founding mm. member. So who do you think they're going to be partnering with? It is time yeah. to give Facebook the boot. Screw them. But I know a lot of people, I, I completely agree with you. I'm a- with you um i know a lot of people who are stuck on there in the sense that they have no understanding of what reality is they're like good facebook doggies all of them they they really just um anything that goes against what facebook would believe they 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 also uh hold in low regard they 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 seem to just they seem to be very brainwashed uh, yeah, well, I mean, uh, Facebook for a long time has curated their algorithms and, and manipulated and, and altered what people see and think is actually happening, etc. So, you know, the more people spend time on that platform, the more likely it is to happen. And they've open, openly experimented on manipulating news feeds to uh, uh, change people's emotional state. Uh, yeah. And stuff like that. So, I mean, it's definitely a highly manipulated platform. And that, that means <laughs> they're also doing testing on predictive uh, emotional responses, which is, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Too much. 
So, um, you know, some of the main themes we've already gone over, but as I mentioned earlier, um, there was that one about uh, predictive vaccine uh, administration. So one of the main award winners is called Vaccine Ledger, ensuring quality and safety of vaccines, uh, basically uh, putting all uh, vaccines on blockchain uh, to track mm-hmm. inputs and outputs um, of vaccines and all of that. So no one can fake vaccine certificates anymore. Um, oh. <laughs> among, among other, uh, applications. And then the last two uh, finalists have a similar theme to ones that we discussed a little bit ago, which is this whole thing of predict and also has ties with what the welcome leap is doing. Um, predicting disease before the onset of symptoms, in this case, doing so in communities. Uh, as I mentioned, HHS in the U.S. Has, has been trying, has, has been actively been setting this up across the U.S. Um, with smart sewage sensors that supposedly can detect COVID-19 before it shows up in the population or whatever else. And the people that developed those sensors have openly admitted that it's going, it has lots of um, uh, uses beyond COVID-19 that technocrats will not be able to resist. Uh, Unlimited mm-hmm. Hangout has that report for those that are interested in reading about it. Um, but, you know, several of these um, are interested on these, on these predictive uh, health uh, as a way to stop pandemics. Um so one is uh, called Living Goods, supporting digitally enabled community health workers to strengthen health systems. Um, pretty interesting. Uh, anyway, this one's being uh, all in all in Africa, uh, digitizing the performance of community health workers so it can all be surveilled and monitored. Uh, and, you know, things can be predicted before they happen with AI and what have you. And then the other one is called Desinsda, which is their way of abbreviating uh, disease surveillance with multimodal sensor network and data analytics, basically yeah. putting smart centers throughout entire communities. The United States and the Philippines, the U.S. seems to be like one of the main targets for this stuff, which I find really fascinating. Um Because usually, you know, these these groups like the Gates Foundation and stuff normally do their experiments in the developing world. Yeah. And so much of this is now being done in the U.S. directly. It tells you how they are viewing the U.S. from this point forward. Uh, that's uh, that's for sure. So anyway, that particular program is a wireless sensor network with patented sensor technologies offering a surveillance solution that detects pathogens in air and water up to one week before cases present in humans. Um, wow. Yeah. So they'll, you know, be like, oh, well, no one has symptoms yet, but we're going to have to lock you down. Uh, <laughs> things like that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, that's essentially what's what's coming here, and they plan to focus it in vulnerable, underserved, and remote communities. Um, it's such a limited way to detect viruses before they happen, because you have to have viruses that w- wouldn't show up for nine days, and that 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 there's very rare viruses that don't show up for nine days from where you ca- catch it. Well, it- these AI things, including like one of the main predictive community predictive COVID nineteen algorithms. I wrote about last year for T-Lav called Diagnostic Robotics tied to uh, Israel's military intelligence uh, services. According to the company itself, so obviously it's probably overinflated because it's never been vetted by independent experts, they say is at 79%. So essentially one fourth of the time they could be completely wrong. And that's if you believe them. I mean, honestly, it's probably Mm -hmm. more like half, right? Half the time. Yeah, that's giving them them a lot of like a... 
I think less than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's just pointing out that they're heavily relying on AI technology. None of it has a 100% accuracy rate. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the figures they cite, 90%, 80%, whatever, come from the company itself and haven't been independently vetted by anyone. So who knows how true that is? And they're being used to create mo- huge uh, uh, interventions and policies that have a massive effects on the economy and quality of life uh, for potentially millions of people. Um, it's, it's, it's very disconcerting. But one thing I want to point out here um, is that it's very interesting how much the Trinity challenge is focusing on the surveillance of rural areas, because you have to keep in mind that this is going uh, on at the same time. There's these efforts to create and build up smart cities. So obviously smart cities are going to be surveilled to a, a massive degree, but they also want to make Make sure that they're surveilling adequately rural areas, specifically because rural areas can, you know, produce their own food and be less mm-hmm. dependent on the government and corporations driving a lot of the stuff, including the fourth industrial revolution. They want to be able to uh, surveil and control what goes on there. And that's why a lot of these uh, surveillance things being funded by the Trinity Challenge are focusing on what they say are vulnerable, underserved, and remote communities. They're communities that will not be incorporated into smart cities because of their mm-hmm. geographical location, among other things. So this is a way uh, to keep them uh, under uh, technocrat control as as things advance. And, until you push them into the, the center, um, the, the cities. Uh, I mean, I think that's what they're... That'll they're... probably happen as a consequence of some of these policies. Yeah. Well, you see it with, with with i mean when you talk about farmers earlier the first farmer that popped into my mind was farmer william gates who's uh got most of the farmland around nowadays i hear so <laughs> so i mean these guys they're, they're trying to push people out of the the countryside as best they can because it's so hard to control them out there so these sort of projects are going to be some of the most important going forward for them to actually push people away get those people to a, a into the city not away into Right. Okay. Well, I think we went over plenty today. Uh, this has definitely been longer than a lot of my uh, more recent podcasts, except maybe the exception of the one I did. Uh, well, some of the episodes I've done with Robbie Martin. This is, uh, you know, up there for sure. We're at uh, almost two hours. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep it there. But I just want to mention Trinity Challenge and Welcome Leap are just two organizations already actively planning the post-COVID era that is based on surveillance, eugenics, and transhumanism. It needs to be stopped. They are just starting this. They are trying to keep us all distracted uh, by COVID variants and, and various other things, the Britney Spears conservatorship, whatever, uh, to distract our attention from what they're building behind the scenes. Do not be fooled this time. We cannot afford to repeat what happened the last year and a half. Let's pay attention to what these people are doing, what they're building, so we can say no thanks and stop it because your consent matters. They want to cast a lot of these technologies, including the ones at Welcome Leap, as inevitable. Uh, but a lot of that depends on their PR claiming that this is progress uh, for humanity and not eugenics, which is what it actually is. So, um, you know, I would urge you uh, to share this information um, as widely as possible, uh, whether in the form of this podcast once it becomes publicly available, or maybe someone uh, will hopefully write about the Trinity Challenge maybe before uh, we manage to get to it. We had hoped to do that, but, you know, a lot going on these days. Um, but, you know, what's ultimately is is more important than anything else is that the info gets out. Uh, these people are, are held 
held to account and challenged by uh, the public as much as possible. Because a lot of people doing these experiments and these things, uh, whether it's at Welcome Leap or the Trinity Challenge, are academics. Uh, they're not used to getting public pushback for this stuff. Um, you can write them emails. Um, you can write their supervisors and administrators at their universities emails, um, plan events, whatever, to uh, tell them uh, <laughs> protest against what they're doing, among other things, or inform them uh, what agenda they're ultimately playing into. They are not used to that pushback. And I think, uh, you know, some of these people should should know that there is a, a significant contingent of the global public that is uh, fundamentally against uh, the future that these people are helping to build. Indeed. And I have to say that the uh, importance of these players that we've talked about today, really, I have to repeat it, cannot be overemphasized. Uh, we are truly they like the belly of the beast. They are do, uh, examining and investigating them. will let you see who they work for, and that's really important. So this is part of the reason why we do uh, the work we do is to make sure that you can see the real players, the real people. Get stay away from the distractions of things like Britney Spears and Marilyn Manson, and uh, and actually deal with the real world and things that are actually happening um, that uh, are being uh, things that are being enacted by unaccountable people. Exactly. I think that's a great point to end it on. So thanks everyone for listening. Uh, th a special thanks to our subscribers who get access to this episode first. Everyone else gets it uh, about, uh, we, we lowered the paywall time. So it's about five days or so um, until it becomes publicly available. Um, but we urge you, whether you're a subscriber or not, once it's publicly available to share uh, this podcast widely, because, you know, the, the information is uh, uh, getting out there is more important than anything else. And of course, we're fighting a, a major battle <laughs> against censorship uh, all the time. Um, and, you know, if you're an independent media, please consider covering some of this stuff because I, I would argue and I think you would too Johnny that it's not getting enough coverage um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and especially when uh, when you look into it, I think part of the reason is there's so much stuff going on but I do fear that there's a problem in the independent media that the some of the independent media are becoming repeaters rather than you know than actual uh, journalists or actually you know investigators they start to do what the mainstream media did a long time ago which is repeating what they think trusted sources who they consider trusted um believe so i think everybody's got to do a bit of their own investigation once you start scratching away you see that there's a load of dirt underneath yeah, good point. Um, yeah, yeah, I would tend to agree with that, that I think there are some content creators that have sort of fallen to what, what is often a comfortable pattern of just sort of giving a commentary and analysis on what everyone else is talking about. And so that is, you know, uh, leading to a lot more stories that should be covered uh, being uh, underreported or not reported at all. And that's why if you're listening, if, if the, and I've got, I get emails from people like this all the time, uh, people that are like, how can I uh, I want to do what you do. I want to do this kind of writing, you know, um, but I don't know how to get my info out there and stuff like that. Uh, start a blog, whatever. I mean, there is a, a, a lack of uh, original investigative content right now that people need to see. Um, write something out. Um, if you think it's an important story, uh, cite your sources to the greatest extent possible. Um, send it to people in independent media. Hopefully they'll cover it. You know, I mean, I mean, we all have to start somewhere. Like I started writing a blog just like that uh, originally in Spanish and later in English. Um, eventually got hired at Mint Press News and, and here I am today, right? Um, so, you know, if you're listening and, you know, for whatever reason, think you have extra time uh, to take on some work like this and you have a drive to do that, don't be intimidated uh, by the censorship environment. You know, the, the info, uh, the power and quality of the info, uh, you know, is, is what 
will ultimately drive you to success, right? So yeah, just wanted to end with that. And, um, and censorship usually drives you to keep going as well. <laughs> Yeah, it depends on who you are. Anyway, so um, since we've gone uh, pretty long, uh, we'll just wrap up there. So thanks uh, to everyone for listening and stay tuned uh, for the next episode of Unlimited Hangout.